Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we thank you that you're willing to look at us and not see us as who we are and have that set you against us. To see us in our sin, to see us as our enemy, all things that the Bible describes us as. But yet you love us. You cherished us with foundations of the world. You set value on us. And you showed that to us. And a wonderful example, an example of suffering, pain, agony, an example of glory in sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, conquer death, come back to life, to take my punishment, to be guilty of something he never did, but to be guilty of my actions. Jesus, we thank you for being willing to die. Holy Spirit, we thank you for breathing life into us, giving us faith to trust in you, to put our assurance in you. Would you speak to us today? Refresh us. Father, refresh us. May we hear from your word. And may we love you more. Hear my prayer. Amen. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, is going to be our main passage uh, for today, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 21. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. I'm not going to cover all the content of what's in those verses, but what I'm going to cover is actually very small in those verses. It's only a couple verses in that, in that section. But these verses, I think, are so powerful that we have to spend time on them and slowly go through them. But the reason I give you 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21, and 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, and we're going to go through that whole thing, is to get a context of what's going on, to get the surrounding material to see what's going on in the middle. Now, just put your finger in there. I'm going to go to some other passages. But before we get to 1 Corinthians, I need to ask you this question. Have you ever lost something? Lost something, not as an inconvenience, not like losing your wallet, right? Losing your wallet, it's not fun. It's not fun. Scramble around, losing your car keys, also not fun. Losing your phone, also not fun. But losing your wallet is more of an inconvenience now. With modern technology, if you're like me, I don't keep a lot of cash in my wallet, mostly because I don't have it. But I don't keep a lot of cash in my wallet. I keep cards in my wallet, Visa, MasterCard. Capital One, right? I keep those in my wallet. And those have, have access to more wealth, if you will, more value than any cash I could stuff in that wallet. And so you think to lose those things would be a devastating blow to your, to your financial self. It would be bad, really bad. But nowadays with modern technology, it's easy. It's so easy. We make a couple phone calls, go online, and we cancel everything. Before a person can ever make a purchase, a purchase from our stolen card, we could cancel it all. And banks know this. Right? They go through all these procedures and privacy things to shut things out. Right? My, my car just got stolen and somebody decided to buy $150 worth of Pizza Hut in Vallejo. But my bank knew Paul doesn't eat that much Pizza Hut. He's a little guy. I bet $150 is a fraudulent charge, to which they were right. See, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about losing something like that. 
I'm talking about losing something of extreme significance. Maybe something that's not valued simply by dollar signs. Something that doesn't have intrinsic value in its very nature. But maybe something like sentimental value. Something that you've placed value on. That means a lot to you. We call those prized possessions. They get their value not in what they are, but what they mean to us. I'll give you an example. In my family, a prized possession is a pocket knife. Pocket knife. Very small, simple, Swiss Army pocket knife. This item is a prized possession. Now why? Because in my family, this pocket knife is a rite of passage, if you will. That you have gone from being a boy to being a man, right? It's your rite of passage, not only just for me, right? It was a rite of passage even for my sister. The reason it's a rite of passage is because it symbolizes something very significant to my grandfather. My grandfather is a fisherman, loves to fish, takes his grandkids fishing. Me, my sister. But grandpa is also kind of a control freak when it comes to fishing, right? So you don't get to do a lot of stuff. I mean, you do when you get older, but he's more afraid of losing somebody falling off the boat. And if you know me, I'm a fidgeter. I probably would fall off the boat, right? He already had one of his daughters fall off the boat, and he had to jump in and get her. So he probably has some sense of reserve based on past history. But see, when you got the pocket knife, this meant that now you cut the bait, not Grandpa. You cut the bait. You set the hook. It's a big deal. There's a video, which I'm not going to show you, but there's a video of the Christmas, I believe it was Christmas, where my sister received the pocket knife, and I didn't. And of course, being so mature, and that wonderful, childish, squealy little voice, it's not fair. Oh, that, me- that hurts parents. It's like a dog whistle. You know what I mean? That just, ugh. I saw it, and I thought, that's me? I, I can sound like that? That's a high voice. Well, it wasn't until a couple, I believe, birthdays later, because my sister is older, that's why she got it first, but it took a couple more birthdays, a couple more years to flip on the calendar for my grandpa to give me my pocket knife. And when he gives you the pocket knife, he attaches a little washer, and he engraves on that washer your name, Paul Robert Crandall, and the date you got it. It's a big deal. So I got this pocket knife, and I was ecstatic, because I knew what this meant. I'm a man now. Several weeks later, I lost it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I felt the same way you did. Right? I lost it. And I felt like I had betrayed my grandfather's trust. I, I, I've never told him. I don't think I've still told him that I lost it. Right? That thing was of great value. Now, this thing, there's a Swiss Army knife, right, with the little scissor attachment. My sister got the saw one. I got the one with the special scissor attachment. I don't know why, but I did. It meant a ton to me. It was probably like $20 value, but it meant way more than that. Way more than that. And I would have done anything to get it back. Anything. I would have searched everywhere, and I did search everywhere. Could not find it. Till one day, I go to church. In a church just like this, smaller church, and we have a Christmas gift exchange, a white elephant gift exchange. And in this gift exchange, you're never going to believe what was there. 
Swiss Army pocket knife with a scissor attachment. Oh, yeah. You're thinking what I'm thinking. I could cover my tracks. I'm good. Grandpa never has to know. And if you know me, I'm a competitive person. I don't lose games, right? I don't. It doesn't matter what they are. It could be just a party game. Everybody's just having fun. No, I'm here to win. So I get into this gift exchange, and I'm doing everything. I'm working my magic. If you know gift exchange, it's really about all about presentation. It's really about manipulation is what it's about, right? And I'm getting there, and I'm working my magic, and I finally get it. I finally get it. But there's one steal left, and the last turn, the guy takes the gift. You know who, you know who took it? The pastor's son. Mm. Yeah. Supposed to be caring and loving, I thought. So I, I'm crushed. I'm crushed, right? And I get some bogus gift or something like that. I go after and I go to the pastor's son, who's, of course, going to be a charitable person and sympathize with my, my case. So I tell him my plight. I tell him what's going on. I tell him what this pocket knife means. Tell him all the story of my grandfather. And the charity in his heart falls. He's like, no way, dude. I like this. I'm keeping it. And I was like, I'm never coming to this church ever again. <laughs> no, so then we're starting picking up tables. Setting the chairs back. Sets the pocket knife on a table over here. I'm setting up chairs, cleaning up chairs. Some of these like, no, nah, don't do it, Paul. It's already happened, okay? It's not a real story right now. So I'm setting up table. I see it. See it over there. And I, I probably stared for like 30 minutes in my heart, warring. People are like, is he okay? I'm just seeing this pocket knife thinking, this is it. This is my moment. Nobody's going to know. These people in this church, they don't even know who I am. I'm just going to grab it and run. Too bad I live like five miles away from the church. But I didn't steal it. I couldn't do it. It was a prized possession. It meant so much to me. I put so much value on that item. So much value. It wasn't really about the item itself and what it had. It wasn't about the dollar signs that that possession represented. It was what it meant to me. I had placed value on it. It was my prized possession. You are God's prized possession. We know this because Jesus, when he's here, walking on the earth, he's dealing with some religious people, these churchy people, if you will. And they got a problem with Jesus. They don't like what Jesus is doing. See, Jesus is starting to hang around with people they aren't very cleaned up. Jesus started to hang around with people that they call sinners. Jesus is hanging around these people that aren't churchy people. They don't know how to dress. They don't know how to act. They go to places that churchy people shouldn't go. And the religious people are mad. They're mad because these people are now finding a way to God through Jesus Christ. They're learning. They're listening. They're starting to give their lives. But what these religious people want is for them to obey the rules. And they're not following their rules. And they don't like that they get away with this. And Jesus tends to be kind to them. Well, Jesus, of course, is on a mission. A mission to save sinners. A mission to seek and to save the lost. So he can't put up with this. So Jesus, in his way, tells three stories. And these are stories that you know if you've been to church. You know these stories. They're some of his famous stories. The stories, the parables found in Luke 15. I'll briefly go through them because this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is trying to show these religious people, you don't value what God has placed extreme value on. 
Your values are all messed up. Jesus does the first one. It's the parable of the sheep and the shepherd. There are a hundred sheep, and one sheep strays away. And the shepherd goes out to find the sheep. Now, this isn't like you lost your dog. It's not like the family dog ran away. That's not what this story is about. See, this sheep for a shepherd represented a fraction, a percentage of his income. Imagine if you just lost a percent, a small percent of your annual income in one moment. I'm not talking $100. I'm talking thousands of dollars. Imagine if you lost thousands of dollars in one moment. One moment. What would you do to find them? If I lose a $20 bill, I'm ripping the house apart. Imagine losing thousands of dollars in a moment. You would try everything in your power to find that thing, to retrace your steps, the same thing that the shepherd does. The shepherd leaves the 99 and it says an open pasture. He finds that one sheep and he brings it back. And he's ecstatic, he's overjoyed, so he throws a party. He throws a party because he has lost something of value. See, Jesus says God does this, but does it more. In Luke 15, it says in verse 7, Jesus is comparing this joy that the shepherd has to the joy of his father. In verse 7, it says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. What's Jesus' point? You are valuable. These people are valuable. That's his point. But just like Jesus, it's just like him for him to repeat himself again because they don't get it. So he ups the ante. He says, forget, forget one out of a hundred. Let's move to the next story. The next story is one out of ten. One out of ten. A woman loses a silver coin. Now, people say this silver coin probably represents a day's wage for a servant. Other people said, they've estimated, maybe this piece of silver was part of an arrangement, a decoration, a piece of jewelry, because it's significant that it's one out of ten. So maybe that's lost in its collection, the whole collection loses its value. I think looking beyond those things is, is good, but I think Jesus' point is found in how the parables progress. One to a hundred, one to ten. I think Jesus' point is this. What is lost in this parable with the woman and the silver coin is of ten times more value, roughly, than what was lost before. What is Jesus doing? Jesus upping the ante. He is saying what is lost here is of extreme value. Extreme value. And the woman searches, frantically looking through her house. She finds it and throws party. She throws a party to which Jesus likens to what goes on in heaven when he says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You are valuable. Jesus says again, you are valuable. You are a prized possession. Does Jesus stop there? No. He goes even beyond that, beyond a sheep, beyond a coin. He goes to his most famous parable, the parable of the prodigal son. And this story is different. Because not only has the ratio increased, 1 to 100, 1 to 10, now it's 1 of 2. But even throw that ratio aside. Because what is lost in this parable is significantly greater than the other. It's not a sheep, it's not a coin, it's not a possession, it's a person. It's a son. You see, but unlike the other two stories, the son didn't wander away mistakenly. 
The son didn't fall off the shelf. The son lost himself. He intentionally lost himself. He wanted to leave. But just as the shepherd scoured the countryside to find that sheep, that prized possession, just as the woman searched through her house, the drawers, all the things to find that coin, when the father, the noble father, see his son from far away at the city gates, he runs to him, runs to him. That running for such a noble man at that time would be a shameful act. Why? Because it would expose the lower part of his leg when he ran. You see, but the father in this story was more than just willing to be inconvenienced like the shepherd and the woman. He was willing to be shamed for the sake of his son. And this is the story of our God. This is the story of Jesus Christ. When he sees his prized possession, his valuable possession, does shame stop him? No. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, endured the cross. It was for the joy set before him that he endured this cross, but he despised its shame. The Father is willing to let his Son be shamed for us because we are his prized possession. So in Jesus' story, when the Father is talking to the older Son who's always been there, always been there, and he sees his son come back, listen to the joy that the father has. It is so much more than the coin, so much more than the sheep. He tells his son, it is fitting, it is right, it is proper for us to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead. Was the sheep dead? Was the coin dead? No. But this prodigal son was dead without his father. It says he was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. What is Jesus' point? You are valuable. You're valuable. You're valuable. You are valuable to God. Even if we scorn him, even if we push him away like the prodigal son did, God is still willing to lovingly embrace you no matter the cost, even if it's the cross. You are God's prized possession. But our passage for today shows us that we don't feel like this. We don't feel like this. We haven't tied God's value of us to our esteem, to our ego, to our identity, to our sense of worth. We question our worth every single day. We stare at the mirror of approval, hoping that we like what we see. We are running and wanting for significance every day. But just like a desert mirage, the moment we think we've laid hold of it, it disappears and winds up on tomorrow's hill, always leaving us wanting. Our ego, our esteem is like a black hole, constantly fed but never filled, ongoing every day. We do these diets that we despise to get bodies that we dream of, only to every day stare at the mirror and leave ourselves wanting. We work countless amount of hours, stay away from our homes, just to get a boss to say, a boy, good job. But after those words leave, our ego is still hungry. Our esteem is still not set right. 
we still work for significance. The problem is God's value of us has not invaded our minds. It has not captured our view of our worth. We say amen that we are valuable, but we don't feel it. We look at the mirror instead of the cross. But just like that pocket knife, where is its true value? In itself? In its scissor attachment? No. The value comes from the owner. The value comes from me. The value on you comes from God. This is our 1 Corinthians passage. You see, they have a problem. They have the problem that I have. They have the problem that we have. Their ego has gone awry. Their esteem is out of control. It has turned rotten. This part of themselves is constantly hungry, constantly looking for significance, constantly looking for acceptance. And we know the ego is rotten when we see pride. And this is what happens with the Corinthian church. Pride has invaded this religious institution, and now it is ripping away at the seams. It's about to be divided. Look at how Paul describes this church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21. And remember, we're going to hone down and focus on just really two verses. But listen to the condition of this church. Listen to their problem and see if you find something similar in your life. Paul says, so let no one boast. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ. And Christ is God's. This is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You can see Paul already says, you're viewing us wrong. You're viewing us wrong. You can't even look at us, your leaders, rightly. Your pride has invaded your idea of relational attachment. You don't view us right. He keeps going. Moreover, it is required of stewards that we be found faithful. Now, this is the part we're going to focus on right here. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. I'm not innocent because of how I judge myself. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring light to the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Each one will receive his condemnation from the Lord. This Corinthian church was founded by Paul. Founded by Paul. It has many members that can trace their conversion to the ministry of Paul. But soon after Paul leaves, some other evangelists come in. Apollos and Cephas. They come in. And now there are people in this church that tie their faith, their Christianity, to these men. Now the problem is, these relationships, pride has laid hold of them. And what is happening is this. You think it has made these party spirits. So think of the church like this. They're in a meeting. 
there's a decision that needs to happen in the Corinthian church. What carpet should we have? Purple or gray? Whatever it is. Could be minuscule, could be larger than that. Probably larger than that because it institutes, uh, it necessitates a letter from Paul. This problematic church. So they're going through some large decision, whether to go contemporary or traditional in their hymns. And a man steps up and he says, well, I was discipled by Paul, the great apostle, better than Apollos. What is Apollos written? What letters do we have in the word of God that come from Apollos' pen? None. I am of Paul. And Paul is superior to both of these men, which means I'm superior. So I will lead out on this decision. See, they have taken these relationships with Paul, with Apollos, with Cephas, they've taken them and they don't really cherish these relationships. They're using them. They're using them as references on their spiritual resume to make them feel like they're somebody. My leader is better than yours, therefore I am better than you. But this is what pride does. When the ego goes awry, when your esteem goes awry, Pride steps in, and what does pride do? Compares and boasts every time. Every time, compares and boasts. And these members, these divisive members, are victims of pride. Pride that they started in their heart. And they're holding on to these relationships to give them some sense of value. Their view of themselves is only based on comparing themselves to somebody else. My leader is better than yours. Therefore, I am better than you. C.S. Lewis says this is what pride does. This is what pride does. When speaking on a passage like this, C.S. Lewis says this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud of. These men are just padding their resumes with these relationships. It's causing division in the church. And Paul commands them, stop it. Just stop it. You're killing us. Your ego is killing this church that I founded. Stop thinking of us like this. We're stewards of God. Stop thinking of us as a means to get your agenda across. You see, but we do this. I do this. We all suffer the symptoms of pride. We all suffer the symptoms of an ego gone awry. We all suffer these systems. Remember that this letter was not written to atheists. This letter was written to the church. And the ego goes to church. It's true. Oh, it's true. There are times that we feed our ego, our spiritual accomplishments, so we'll feel like we're somebody. There are times where we try to pat our religious resume to make us feel worthy and valuable. Look at all the stuff I do for valor. I'm necessary. God, I'm needed. Look at all the stuff I do for you. How valuable am I? We attach our identity, worth, value, and significance to what we do to try to say that that's who we are. But isn't this what Corinth did? Isn't this what they're doing? 
They're not going out and sinning. They're not going out and, and uniting themselves to prostitutes. These guys are taking spiritual leaders and using them for sin. Why? Because pride has gone awry. Because the ego is not satisfied. And they must find some, will somebody tell me I'm somebody? I'm somebody because I'm near to this guy. I'm somebody because I'm just in the proximity of Pastor Phil. I'm near him. I'm close to him. You see the good word that he says to me? That means I'm valuable here. But that's pride. Now we're suffering the same thing that Corinth was. But how does this happen? These aren't meant to do that. Times of service, times of prayer, Bible studies, they're not meant to pat our spiritual resumes, to feed our esteem. Well, how does this happen? How does pride so easily slip its way into religion? How does it happen to Corinth? How did it happen to Corinth? How does it happen to us? I think Paul addresses this in verses 3 and 4. And they're powerful. These verses are so powerful. We can't really move beyond them. They are one message in themselves. Let's look at verse 3. Verse 3. Paul says, But with me is it a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. What does Paul say? Paul's saying here, let me tell you how this esteem thing works. Let me tell you how this value thing works. I don't get my value, my worth, my significance from outside. I don't get it from you. In fact, I don't even get it from myself. But first off, Paul says, I don't get it from others. I'm not judged by others. Now the word judge, you've got to take that in the context of the entire Bible. Paul is not saying, don't judge me as in don't hold me spiritually accountable to the things I should do in Christ. He's not saying that. Paul is not advocating against church discipline. Paul is not saying that we shouldn't be held accountable as brothers and sisters in Christ. What Paul is saying, that word judge, that word judge comes from the root verdict. Think of it, he's talking about the verdict on who he is at his core. Who he is, his esteem, his worth, his value, his acceptance. What am I worth? What is my value? And Paul is saying that popular opinion is not where his value rests. Paul is not in the courtroom judged by a jury of his peers. They are not the center of his source of significance. Paul is not crushed by criticism by those outside of him. Paul is not puffed up by praise of others. Paul is not concerned with somebody liking his status, sharing his photos, or retweeting him. He does not find value in others, from others. Now the next one is the hard one. The next one is the hard one, because what does he say after that? I don't even judge myself. This is where we go. Ooh, this is where we go. And this is a hard one. I have little kids. This is a hard one. Because this is where we train our children. This is where I have trained my children to retreat. If somebody hurts you, somebody calls you a name, somebody criticizes you, you march to the beat of your own drum. You ever said that? You do your best and are satisfied with that. Is that, is that the answer? Set your own standards of significance? Set your own standards of accomplishment? Set your own standards? You've ever done this before? 
I've done this. You ever been critiqued by somebody only to get inwardly defensive and say, they don't know where I grew up. You don't know where I'm from. You don't know where I come from. Man, you don't know what I had to overcome. You don't know my achievements. You don't know who I am. But Paul says, if we go inward, we find no solution. We find no solution. Paul says he can't even think of anything against himself. He says, I can't even think anything. But you know what? Even if I can't even think of one reason that God should be disapproved of me, if I can't think of one sin that I have not confessed to Jesus Christ, does that equip me? No. No. So where does he find his value? This is it. One small sentence. Verse 4. But it is amazing. It is powerful, and it will transform the way you view your life. He says this, it is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord who judges me. Not you, not me. It is the Lord who judges me. And then he goes on to talk about a future day when that judgment will be announced. But the beauty of this judgment is it's not future. It's actually past. The future judgment of God is merely an announcement. It's not when the verdict came in. The verdict came in long, long before that. You see, now Paul has a true view of himself. He's not sitting there thinking that he's something that he's not. Paul's not going to argue with you. Oh, I'm not a sinner. Paul's not going to argue with you. He's going to be honest with you. He's going to tell you all of his moral failings. How do we know this? Because he wrote them down. When he's writing to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, his first letter to this boy in the first chapter, he only gets 15 verses in, and he says, this is a trustworthy saying, Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Or some translation, I am the chief. Is Paul sitting there parading himself as, I'm great, I'm righteous, I'm perfect, I'm good, I have no sin. No, not even close. Not even close. But you see, Paul has arrived to a place where his sin is not his identity. They are not attached. They are not linked. They're not even in the same ballpark. What Paul does is not his identity. Paul, I don't think, would use the AA intro, Hi, my name is Paul, and I'm an alcoholic. Would he admit to sin? Absolutely. But is that who he is? Is that his significance, his value, his worth? Is that how he esteems himself? Absolutely not. God's value of him is his esteem. God's value of him is his esteem. You see, Paul is hard to categorize. He's not high self-esteem. He's not low self-esteem. He gets confusing. Read the writings of Paul. In Timothy, he's the chief of sinners. But then he defends his apostleship, and it almost sounds like he's a little bit arrogant. It sounds like he's high self-esteem, low self-esteem. What is he? Is he bipolar? Where is he at? See, but Paul is different. And we finally get into, since Paul's psyche, how Paul thinks in verse 4. I don't judge myself. You don't judge me. God judges me. Paul is in a new category. He's on another planet. Not high self-esteem, not low self-esteem, but self-forgetfulness. self forgetfulness. That's where Paul lives. That's where he's at. Tim Keller 
explains it this way. We're reflecting on this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is what Tim Keller says. He says, Paul is saying that he has reached a place where his ego draws no more attention to itself than any other part of its body, his body. Meaning the ego isn't hungry. It's not wanting, searching for significance. He has reached a place where he's not thinking about himself anymore. When he does something wrong or he does something good, he does not connect it to himself anymore. His value does not come from what he does, good or bad. He's not building a resume. Paul is not concerned with an earthly court, how you view him. Paul is not concerned with a mental court, how he views himself. Paul is concerned with a heavenly court. He is not on trial from peers. He is not on trial for himself. The opinion that matters is found in the courtroom of heaven. The question of identity is, how does God see me? How does God see me? And Paul describes this heavenly courtroom in Romans chapter 8. Paul describes this heavenly courtroom in Romans chapter 8. Paul, yes, in a sense, is on trial, but from God. But look at how this trial takes place. This is beautiful. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 4. I'm going to read it right now. So you just stop yourself and imagine this courtroom scene. Just put yourself. You are the one who committed the crime. This is the prosecution. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Who's the flesh? I'm the flesh. You're the flesh. We're the flesh. We couldn't do the law. Uh Uh-oh, it's bad. All the evidence is stacked against us. Exhibit A, exhibit B, all of our sins all the way down to Z. All of them are laid out before us. And we've messed them all up. If we can't admit it, just think of what Jesus said when he's on the Sermon on the Mount. He says that obedience is not just something you see, it's something in here too. Jesus says if you looked with lust, then you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus says if you're angry at a brother, you committed murder. Who of us could stand? Many of us here could say our hands are clean. We've never done a crime. But who in this room has really held every thought captive and said that it's pure? None of us. We're not even close. We're not even close. But see, the trial doesn't end there. The trial ended there. That's awful. We're all guilty. But that's not how the courtroom ends. That's not how the trial ends. Look at what it says God did. God, by sending his own son, this is Jesus Christ, In the likeness of sinful flesh, he became a man. In the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't become become a sinner. He never committed a sin. But in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. The verdict came down in a sense. The penalty was laid there. Death. But we didn't take it. He did. Now check this out. This is the best part. He says he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law. There's the trial. Here's the verdict. The gavel is coming down. The righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. In us. You see, this is how God sees me. In this courtroom. God, when he looks at Paul Crandall, doesn't see sin. He can't. I have been thrust into Christ. His identity is my identity. 
So when he sees Paul Crandall, he sees Jesus Christ. Because by faith, I have entered into union with him, saying, you are Lord, I am broken, pay my penalty. He gladly takes it on, and now I am clothed in Christ. Now check this out. That means everything God, the Father, would say about the Son, he says about me. Everything that the Father would say about the Son, he says about me, because he sees Christ in me. Maybe better, he sees me in Christ. I'm righteous. I'm perfect. I'm holy. I'm good. That's the courtroom. That's the courtroom. And we are not on trial anymore. The courtroom is done. It's happened. The verdict is in. You are good. That's your value. Our problem is we are so tempted to thrust ourselves in the courtroom of life every single day. The gavel is hit, friend. You are good if you are in Christ. Now it's confusing. It's a strange analogy. How can we not attach ourselves to who we are, Paul? I'm a sinner. I do sins. How is that not my value? How is that not my worth? How is that not who I am? This is hard. This is hard for me to explain. But I'm a visual learner. So I have a visual for you. This is a t-shirt. You might not be able to tell. But it's a t-shirt. You can see up there, it, doesn't, it looks like a rag. It's holes. I mean, it's holes everywhere. We could look at this t-shirt and say, what of it? It's ruined. It's dirty. It's useless. What's the value of it in itself? The value of a rag. It's not any good. You see, but this t-shirt is my prized possession. And that's not a joke. This t-shirt is my prized possession. But Paul, look at it. It's broken. It needs to be mended. It needs to be fixed. This is my prized possession. Why? This is the only thing, the only thing I have left that was my father's. It's the only thing I have. That's it. My dad died of an overdose when I was 12. He was a poor man, did not have many possessions. His clothes, his items, his, his possessions were sold either to pay a debt or given to goodwill. But you can't sell that. So I kept it. For 17 years I've kept it. 17 years. It has only come out of the house twice. This is the second time. This is a prized possession. A prized possession of mine. But because it reminds me of the relationship I had with my father, it has sentimental value. But who gives, or how, where does its value come from? Itself? No, its value comes from me, from the owner of the item. This is us. We are this. If you come to my counseling office and you list off all your problems, what am I going to do? I'm going to agree with you. You have problems. I have problems. We're broken. We're wounded. We have gaping holes in our holiness. It's true. But we are still at the same time valuable. Why? Because it is not you who judge me. It is not me who judges me. God judges me. God judges me. So yes, we are wounded. Yes, we are damaged. But we are valuable to the king. And value 
does not come by looking inwardly or looking at the crowd. Value comes from looking above. And this value never changes. You see, but this is so different. It's so different than how we were raised, brought up, how we naturally think. Because the gospel is the only place you get the verdict before the performance. Think of it like this. Think of a child looking through the curtain at one of their elementary school performances, looking out, peering out, 10 minutes before the show, seeing everybody come in, all the digital cameras, all the beeping red lights, all the parents pushing people over to get a good vantage point. Right? Looking out there, and you're anticipating the performance that you have. And you have the anxiety of, will I do well? See, but this is not the gospel. This is not the gospel. Because what God does is something different. When we peer out of that curtain before the first performance, we see that there's somebody sitting on the first row. And it's our Heavenly Father. And He sits down and then stands up before the curtain ever opens. And He applauds. Only in the gospel do we get the applause before the performance. Only in the gospel is it not about what I do that he'll love me. Only in the gospel. Islam, if you are a Muslim, we love you, brother. We are glad that you are here. But you have to admit, you have to perform to get the applause. If you're an atheist, if you're here and you don't believe in God, you feel that you have to prove that you are a good person. However you believe the, believe the consequences will end at your life, your life is the same way. You have to perform to get the verdict. We don't know who you are yet until we see what you do. Or maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's irreligion, right? Maybe it's just running through life. Maybe it's gangbanging, right? Maybe it's just finding a community that you feel that you can adopt and have value and significance in. But you've got to do stuff before you are welcomed in. Maybe it's football. Maybe it's basketball. Maybe it's as a grandparent, the behavior of your children, the success that they do in school, the success that they do in their careers. But this is not the gospel. The gospel isn't wait for the applause. The verdict is in, and your value is in him, and it does not change, ever, ever. So let me ask you this question. Is your ego hungry? Is your esteem hungry? Or is it satisfied in the verdict of the gospel? Is it hungry? Do you find yourself participating in conversations, hoping only to insert your opinion, to show your expertise, and to get the attention and the praise of others? Is your ego hungry? Do you crumble when people critique you, finding your value and how they view you? Is your ego, is your esteem hungry? Do you glow when somebody praises you only to dim so quickly? Is your ego, is your esteem, is it hungry? Do you count all the likes you get on your status and your photos on Instagram and Facebook? Is the list of your Facebook friends simply an indicator of your rising social stock? Is your ego hungry? Do you dress to catch a lustful eye, hoping to get value in that, hoping to get value in somebody else's attention? 
Is your worth measured by your waistline? Is your ego hungry? Or is it satisfied in the gospel? You have to, we have to, I have to feed myself a steady dose of the gospel every single day to remind myself, Paul, don't work for love. Don't work for acceptance. Don't work for significance. Don't work for value. Work because you have these things in Jesus Christ. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, I know this about you and you must agree that your ego is hungry. You want value. You want significance. You want somebody to look at you. Maybe it's intimidation. I want somebody to fear me. I want somebody to say, yeah, he is somebody. That dude's tough. Or maybe it's another thing. Maybe it's you need to feel attractive. You need to capture eyes. Or maybe it's you just need to be the best at what you do. To somebody tell you that you're something. You're waiting. All of us inside are really waiting for somebody to say, you are somebody. But we are listening and waiting for a voice that has already spoken. And it's spoken at the cross. Take yourself out. Put your identity in the gospel. Don't work for it. Don't work for it. Work out of it. You see, because just like that performance, does that kindergarten, that elementary school kids still perform? But they don't perform thinking, what's the critique going to be? They're not on trial. They're not sitting there waiting every word, every step, every move that I did. Do I do it wrong? Am I going to get a passing grade? You are not being graded. But there's still a performance. But you see, when we perform for the loving, unconditional love of the Heavenly Father, we perform just for the joy of it. Not seeking approval, performing because we're approved. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for who we are in Jesus Christ. We thank you that the gospel speaks our value. It speaks of who we are. And what it says is an unchanging voice. No matter what I do, no matter what I've done, you have spoken, Paul, this is your love. This is your value. This is your worth. This is your significance. This is your esteem. You are valuable to me, Paul. And your value. Father, your value on us is our esteem. And Father, I pray for any of those out there, whether it be a believer or uh, an unbeliever, somebody who doesn't yet know you, searching out this whole God thing, whatever it is, wherever they're at, our egos can be hungry. Even if we know Christ, even if we know his forgiveness, we can still search for applause from somebody else. We're all waiting for that. Father, I pray that we find that the ego, the esteem, is only satisfied in the gospel. The gospel that says, you're loved. You're loved. I'll die for you. I'll pay your penalty. And then you'll work as my loved son and daughter. Just go perform for me. Go stand on stage. Make a fool of yourself. But I love you, and I'll always applaud. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Amen.